Welcome to the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. My name is Natalie Nidham. I'm a nutritionist, a human potential, and epigenetic coach, and I created this podcast to bring you the latest ways to take control of your health and longevity. We cover it all, from new technology to ancestral health practices, personalized interventions, and a very special interest of mine, peptides. Enjoy the show. Peripheral neuropathy is a condition that affects far too many people in the US and Canada worldwide. But my guest today is a leading researcher, physician, and teacher of other physicians, both in the world of peripheral neuropathy and also how diabetes impacts neuropathy or vice versa. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Barrett. This interview was Honestly, it was a gift to me, and I think it's going to be a gift to a lot of you guys as well. Dr. Barrett is a board-certified physician by the American Board of Foot and Ankle Surgery, as well as the American Board of Pediatric Medicine. He formerly served as the president of the Association of Extremity Nerve Surgeons. I mean, his bio is huge. I'm not going to read it to you here because I'll just bore you to tears. And really what you need to do is get to the meat of this episode and hear this man speak. Check out his TEDx presentation, which is named Some Nerve for Saving Diabetic Lives. So suffice to say that Dr. Stephen Barrett is an incredible resource and I think has so much to share, both in his attitude, his professionalism, and his approach to complex problems. So to learn more from Dr. Barrett or about Dr. Barrett, you will want to go to nervetx.com. I think he may even give his email at the end of the podcast, but if he does, you're lucky. If not, go to nervetx.com and you will be able to find him there or check out his TED Talk. As always, if you get value from this episode, please make sure that you share it with your friends, your family, and anybody else who you know who will get value from it as well. Leave us a five-star review if you're feeling the love. If not, by all means, move on. And I'm so excited about this episode. I'm just going to stop talking right now and let you dig into it right after we hear from our sponsor. So thank you so much for being here. Totally appreciate you guys, as always. And I look forward to hearing your comments on this interview. Enjoy. Hey folks, quick word from our sponsor, Berkeley Life Professional. If you've been listening for a while, you've probably heard me talk about nitric oxide, a vital molecule made naturally in the body, responsible for vasodilation and circulation. But as we produce less of it as we age, resulting in diminished blood flow, I, along with many of my listeners, have been supporting our nitric oxide levels with an easy daily dietary nitrate supplement called Berkeley Life. But did you know that nitric oxide also has topical impacts? Berkeley Life's new topical nitric oxide serum combines vitamin C and nitrite to create nitric oxide gas directly on the skin. I get a beautiful blush for about five or 10 minutes as the serum goes to work on my skin's microvasculature without any kind of burning or tingling sensation. I'm now using the serum daily alongside my Berkeley Life supplement. As the biggest organ in my body, I know my skin is thanking me for the improved delivery of oxygen and nutrients being delivered through my circulatory system, thanks to nitric oxide. Berkeley Life is available only through health practitioners. So you can access Berkeley Life products at berkeleylife.com and use my practitioner code NIDDBL to place your order and get 10% off that first order. Once again, berkeleylife.com. 
And now let's get back to the episode. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that all of the information presented in this podcast is for information purposes only. No medical advice, no diagnosing, no treatments suggested here. Before you try anything that you hear about or learn about here, make sure that you check with your medical provider. Dr. Stephen Barrett, such a pleasure to have you here. I'm so excited for this conversation. Well, likewise, I appreciate the the time to spend with you today as well. Oh, I think this is going to be so good. And you guys are in for such a treat. We are going to start this episode as we do most episodes, because I think that you just have a great story. Everybody has a great story, but your story is exceptionally great, as we were talking about before. And so if you could tell, share with the audience a little bit about your background and how you got to this place where not only are you, you're, you're kind of, to me, you're bridging the world between conventional medicine and what we would call functional medicine in an area that's in high need of this stuff. So tell us about yourself, Dr. Barrett. (laughs) Well, let me preface everything that I think you really have to be open-minded and you have to integrate everything available um, that's out there, whether it's considered functional or integrative medicine or traditional medicine. And when you treat difficult things like peripheral neuropathy, it humbles you very quickly because uh, there's many things that don't work. And um, most of the time you have to have some type of an amalgamation and bring everything you possibly can for that patient. And clearly when you get to that um, realization, then you, um, you start adopting these other things that weren't taught in the uh, traditional uh, medical school uh, pathways. So, um, my story is kind of interesting because in the early 90s, I uh, didn't really like the way one of the common foot conditions was being treated called Morton's neuroma. And it's not a neuroma at all. In fact, it should be called Morton's entrapment. But we developed a way to decompress it rather than cut the nerve out. And that led me to um, crossing paths with uh, uh, my mentor, who's a was a professor at uh, Johns Hopkins and in plastic and neurosurgery. And uh, he took me under his wing in the late 1990s, early 2000s. His name's Lee Dellen. Um, He just retired uh, last month, I believe. Mm. And uh, anyhow, um, Dellen had made this incredible observation that uh, people with diabetic peripheral neuropathy, uh, most of the time, or in a large majority of cases, let's say, uh, their nerve symptoms are due to the fact that because of their metabolic condition, the nerve swells and where it goes through a tight tunnel, like the carpal tunnel in the hand, um, it causes a focal nerve entrapment. So if you relieve that focal nerve entrapment, then all of a sudden, many of the symptoms of diabetic peripheral neuropathy can go away completely or to a significant level where a patient now has a protective sensation. So when a, when a diabetic patient loses protective sensation, that increases their risk of ulceration. A subset of them will go on, unfortunately, to have an amputation. And once you have an amputation, then your life expectancy is less than about five years from that time. So it's a pretty significant and very serious disease, not only from the mortality standpoint, but also the, the uh, amount that some of these patients suffer. Yeah. I have a question for you just to clarify. So when you say loss of protective sensation, you're talking about basically going numb, like the nerve stops. Is it that the nerve stops sending the pain signal? Cause I'm, if you could clarify that, I'm just not clear on it. 
I'd love to clarify that, but there are some folks that have incredible amounts of numbness, Mm -hmm. but yet can feel everything very well, which is very, oh yeah. So really odd. No, it is very odd. It is very odd, but basically um, protective sensation is provided by the a beta fiber, which is one of the three main fibers in the peripheral nerve. There are more fibers, of course, but for, for our discussion, let's talk about the three that are really, um, you know, the most um, concerning or, or at the top of the list. The first would be the motor fiber. That's what makes the muscles contract and, and work. Yep. The second is the A-beta fiber, which is the sensory nerve fiber. And that tells your brain that your skin is being touched or pressed by something. And then you have the C fiber, which is a pain fiber. And then you have Delta fibers, D fibers as well. But the A beta fiber is the first fiber to be affected by a focal nerve compression. So when that fiber loses its ability to function, then it, then you become insensate. So your level of sensation and it's such an insidious process in, in many mm-hmm. people, they don't even know that they don't have sensation and you can, you can test them and they'll say, no, I can't feel that. So they may not have the feeling of numbness at all, but yeah. yet they, but they can't feel. So for a mat- feel pain, they can feel pain. And so then and for sometimes. sure, they don't know they can't feel. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, um, so nerves are really fickle. They're very um, individual and the more you study and, and spend time with patients who suffer from neuropathy, the more humble you get because some things just don't make sense um, mm-hmm. from a peripheral nerve standpoint. But to go back to the insensitivity, so if you're unable to really feel something because of this compression, then you could, a, a pebble could be you know, in your shoe and you could walk around all day and you take your shoe off and it's filled with blood and you've never felt anything painful at all. Wow, wow, wow. And then, you know, if an infection sets in, you sure. know, then you have a problem. So in diabetic peripheral neuropathy, you have really two components that you have to worry about it. One is sensation, the neuropathic component. And the other is what's the vascularity. And mm-hmm. there's almost always some component of microangiopathy with the peripheral neuropathy. But what's interesting is many times when we decompress these entrapped nerves, the circulation will improve. And the question is why? Well, there could be a couple of reasons. One is because the nerve now can function and that provides some homeostatic uh, benefit to the extremity. The second is, is that the nerve many times will run through a tight tunnel where also the artery that runs through. So if you open that up, you know, you, you've released uh, or relieved a, a mechanical component of compression. Uh, so uh, that's a long story before telling my story, but basically I was just lucky enough to cross paths with Dr. Dellen back in the late nineties, early 2000. I ended up helping him uh, train surgeons. We trained about 300 surgeons in nerve decompression and, and lower extremity nerve surgery, uh, other techniques. And um, I think one of my emotions when I first met him and, and went up and started spending time in his office was that um, I was kind of unhappy because this I'd seen all these patients for such a long period of time that, and we were told, sorry, there's nothing you can do. 
Um, you just have to live with your condition. That's it. You know, go home, nice. take some, take some Lyrica, uh, take some Neurontin and that's, that's the best we can do. That's it. And, uh, so that didn't, um, that didn't sit real well with me because here I had all these patients flickering in the back of my mind that I said, you know, there's nothing that we can really do except give you a drug to maybe mask some of the symptoms, but certainly didn't provide them with any benefit for um, improved sensation and protective sensation. So, um, so then, you know, we started into, you know, this rabbit hole, so to speak. And now 20 years later, all I do is peripheral nerve. And um, the more we did, the more we realized that there's still a lot of things we need to do to optimize the human, because although we all want that one magic hammer or one magic bullet, there is no such thing. And so that's what led me into the things that we'll talk about with peptides and um, some of the other, you know, things that we do to, to try to make these patients better that have peripheral neuropathy. It's so interesting because again, peripheral neuropathy, I'm going to say is in my Facebook community, it's one of those issues. Like people are just at their wits end. They don't know where to go anymore. And it's clearly not just a question of taking some anti-inflammatory. They do sometimes experience some, and I guess we'll talk about this. They, and maybe if, if they're not too far gone, I mean, I don't know under what conditions this is even possible, but occasionally you'll come across someone who might get some benefit from a BPC-157. I haven't seen much great results with ARA-290, which is another peptide that's had done, people have done some research around it in nerves and mostly it's the chronic fatigue, I think. Um, right. myopathy, but occasionally they'll get that benefit from the BPC 157. And I wonder if maybe that's someone who just, they haven't gone so far down that path yet that just even that little bit of anti-inflammatory benefit and the BPC 157 has some benefit for nerves. So I'm just wondering if it's possible that when it's too, not too far gone, that BPC 157 might be enough just to help a little bit. I mean, not that it resolves the issue, obviously. So I think the thing is, is that, you know, when you, you talk about peripheral neuropathy, well, what, what does that mean? Because it's a very nebulous, um, broad term. Peripheral just means outside the central nervous system, outside of the brain and the spine, of course. But neuropathy, if you break it down, it's Greek derivatives, neuro and apathy just means something's wrong with the nerve. So it's not a very broad. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so broad that it's really not even helpful to tell you the truth because I mean, you can have a neuropathy from a contusion. You can have a neuropathy from metabolic disease, like we've been alluding to. Uh, And you can have neuropathies from toxic mold, uh, increased heavy metal exposure. There's myriad neuropathies out there. And so to categorize them all as peripheral neuropathy is really a it's kind of a, a, yeah, it's a disservice because it doesn't help us figure it out. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, we look at neuropathy totally different than most practitioners. And that is we want to get to the cause of it. So Mm -hmm. you'll see the term idiopathic neuropathy and idiopathic means we're just idiots and can't figure it out, (laughs) or we don't have an energy, enough energy and emotional interest to, to figure out what's really causing it. But most of the time, 
if let's say that 50% of the time it's idiopathic neuropathy, probably a good 80% of those 50%, we can figure it out. Mm-hmm. It, it's not easy many times because, uh, you know, we'll do mold testing on them. We'll look at, you know, heavy metals. I mean, we do, you know, complete metabolic assessments on these folks. And most of the time we're able to identify something. So I think the first thing is to really dial in and say, well, we need a good accurate diagnosis. And the sad thing is, is that patients can have more than one thing at at one time. So they may have a reactivated Epstein bar. They may have, uh, you know, a high uh, level of mold or, or uh, less than ideal metals, uh, these types Mm -hmm. of things. And, um, so you have to really kind of treat the whole scenario. That's why these cases are not easy to treat. Yeah. And, and in truth, there's a lot of people and, and most neurologists really don't like to treat peripheral neuropathy because okay, well, it, that's, it's, that's weird. <laughs> well, well, it, it, you know, I have a lot of neurologist friends. It's like, well, we don't really like to treat that so much because, you know, all we can do is diagnose it and, you know, give them, you know, gabapentin or Lyrica and, uh, you know, that's it. And so we've taken a different approach. Uh, we have to look at, well, why is this person having some problem with their nerve? And then, so to circle back to your question about BPC-157, I love BPC-157. I've seen unbelievable benefits from it from a musculoskeletal standpoint. Mm-hmm. I have not had much experience at all with it from a neurological standpoint, but this is one of the things that we were talking about earlier with the bioregulatory uh, peptides, because I think that if you just make the person more healthy yeah. and you, and you improve their circulation, yeah, you're going to decrease their symptoms of neuropathy, even if it's an idiopathic, um, case where you can't figure it out. So I don't know if that answered your question or not, but yeah. I think, but I think th- there's certainly no harm giving somebody BPC-157. And it's one of the few that you can take orally and it can get past the gas, well, because it came from the gastric juices. But, you know, so it, it seems to make, um, you know, a big difference. Now, one of the places we do use uh, peptides almost routinely now is on some of our nerve decompressions, especially if we're having to do revision surgery. So I use thymus and beta-4 on every one of those patients to decrease the scar tissue formation after surgery. And if they've already had surgery, they're a, they're a mess from a scar tissue standpoint and you know, they're going to scar more. So, mm-hmm. you know, we'll try to, you know, do everything we can to mitigate that, that post-operative scar tissue formation. And that has made dramatic, dramatic benefits. Interesting. So, okay. So before we get it, jump into the peptides, I wanted to talk a little bit about what you used to, your progression, right? You, you right. said that you used to use PRP, then you moved to stem cells or uh, I think it was stem cells, not autologous, right. though, like, um, yeah, like ambiotic, right. Yeah. And then you found the peptide. So let's start with the PRP because again, like I hear this a lot in the group, people are they're to your point, they're scrambling, they're looking for answers and, Oh, I right. heard PRP. I heard this, I heard that. And I, you know, one of the things that you said that I think is so important and so, you know, it'll bring tears to some of these listeners' eyes is that you mentioned the terms EBV or viral load or heavy metals. And and of course, as soon as you have one of these imbalance, you become much more susceptible to the rest of them. Right. Right. So 
So I think that even acknowledging that these issues are a part of this of the of the catchment of the of what you're looking at is right. is so incredible. But but let's start with the with what you used to like. I mean, you you came to a place where PRP was what you were treating. Right. So until about the late '90s, when I was fortunate enough to cross paths with Dr. Dallin, I I was uh, I pretty much was a reconstructive foot and ankle surgeon. That was what I specialized in and then, you know, evolved into nerve from then. So I, I, I saw a lot of heel pain, um, developed a procedure called endoscopic plantar fasciotomy back in the early nineties. And that technique, we trained about 6,000 surgeons. So we saw an incredible amount of heel pain that, um, unfortunately, uh, there's a lot of heel pain out there that has a neurogenic component to it, but, uh, it's in the literature about 93% of the time it's a, it's there's at least part of it's due to a disorder of the plantar fascia. Mm-hmm. And so um, I came across an article in the journal of hand surgery or one of the hand journals, probably early two thousands by, I remember the authors there, uh, Calandrucia and Edwards. I don't know why I remember that. <laughs> that but is they, some memory, <laughs> but they just, they just took blood from one arm and injected it into uh, the tendon outside the elbow and the other arm and the people got better. I thought, wow, this is really kind of interesting. So I started looking into it and thought, well, you know, there's, there's gotta be something, you know, to that. And the traditional treatment at that time for plantar fasciopathy was you just inject them with a steroid until that doesn't work. And then you do some type of surgery. Nobody took the time to really even look at it with ultrasound and, know whether it was an elephant or it was a mouse from a, you know, severity standpoint, but having, having been the plantar fasciitis route myself way, way long ago, when I used to teach high impact, um, they were called aerobic classes at the time on a concrete floor. I have a lot of sympathy for people with plantar fasciitis. It was, it was uh, a journey. I I, I do too. I, I suffered it myself a couple of times and I, you know, wouldn't wish it upon anyone. But back to your question about PRP. So after I saw that article, we did some investigation and there were a couple of companies that were out already making uh, platelet-rich plasma. Um, and we integrated that into our practice and it was really fantastic as far as how it regenerated it. So I hate the use of the term plantar fasciitis because mm-hmm. in 2000, 2003, an article got published that one of the authors was Harvey Lamont, really brilliant guy. And they took specimens from 50 surgeries and put them under the microscope. And there weren't any histological markers of inflammation in any of them. So you had, yeah, so you had 50 specimens and you had 50 people that didn't have inflammation. And so that blew the whole paradigm right there, that this is an inflammatory condition. And what did we do for it? We gave people NSAIDs and we gave, and we injected them with steroids, which if you yep. look at the literature, the, the steroid injections were really no better than just a regular lidocaine um, injection at one year. And the steroids cause a lot of problems because they cause fat pad atrophy. So mm-hmm. they were not a very good thing. But empirically, if we could inject a patient with their own autologous platelets, right? Yeah. And then you know, it, it's going to induce some growth factors. And, and so we saw really within six to eight weeks with ultrasound 
not only did we have patients telling us, yes, they were better from a, a pain standpoint, but we saw changes in their plantar fascia that indicated that it was regenerated. Well, if you go back to the degenerative um, finding in 2003, that makes a lot of sense, right? Mm-hmm. right. And, and I think it's great because it tells about how much the body can repair itself if you give it the opportunity. So then we did that for six, seven years, and then um, amniotic, uh, uh, quote, stem cell uh, injections came, and we used that, and then that was much better from the standpoint that people had less pain after the injection because it wasn't quite as inflammatory, and we just saw really better and faster results with that. And then about two years ago, uh, I started using BPC-157, and that, I mean, we would see changes at sometimes four or five weeks post-injection with the amniotic cells, but with the BPC-157 at three weeks, we would see huge amounts of regeneration. So you can just see the tissue, how it repaired itself. So BPC-157 for musculoskeletal stuff is extremely good. Um, It works really well in Achilles tendinopathy as well. So that was kind of where we got into it from really more of a musculoskeletal standpoint rather than a peripheral nerve situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, we talked earlier this morning about hydrodissection and then the use of something like thymus and beta four after that um, in order to prevent the scar tissue from, from reforming. And so basically what you're trying to do there is, you know, you're putting a large bolus of fluid. Uh, we use D5W. And that is, uh, does a couple of things. One, it kind of separates the, the tissue away from the nerve. So you get a, a little bit of a mechanical decompression. Uh, some reason dextrose in 5% solution shuts down one of the uh, voltage gated ion channels that conducts pain. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because if you use dextrose in like 30%, it causes scar tissue formation. And that's used in prolotherapy. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Higher concentrations. So I guess everything, all drugs come down to dosage, right? Even at, ex- at the end of ex- the day. Even, yeah. 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 Even exercise, right? Yeah. Um, that's my favorite drug exercise. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I love but, that. but, um, so anyhow, I think there's a lot of future for some of these, uh, uh peripheral neuropathy cases, particularly in cases where somebody's had an injury and something is entrapped or scarred down. There, it makes a lot of sense. I, I don't see much applicability to like PRP if somebody just has some type of a systemic um, metabolic um, axonopathy where there's, there's a, a disease process inside the nerve. Mm-hmm. So with peripheral neuropathy, you have to kind of, you know, separate out some of these things because, well, you know, if a nerve's swollen and it's pinched in a tight tunnel, like the carpal tunnel in the hand, well, we can decompress that and the nerve will regenerate, even in patients with diabetes, which is fantastic. Um, there, I would not see much application for PRP. Um, I would see application for thymus and beta-4 uh, to, you know, minimize scar tissue formation. Uh, but in a patient that has had, you know, a bad a contusion or a burn or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, that might be a really great application for, you know, the, the peptides after uh, a hydrodissection. 
Yeah. And so when you're talking about using peptides like a BPC-157, whether it's for the fat, I don't want to say fasciitis anymore. The fasci- I know, fasciosis right? <laughs> <laughs> for the for plantar fascia repair um, yes. <laughs> or whatever else. You have a great story, actually. When I was first introduced to you, it was through through a fellow physician, Gus, right. and you helped his daughter by using BPC one five seven in a very specific way. So, are you doing site injections? Yes, like under imaging, like the whole like I I just kind of right. want to help the audience to understand, like, we're not just talking about a systemic into the, into the belly injection here. Like we're talking about conditions that are, you know, they're, they're very acute and, and, and there's a story for BPC for sure, systemically in many instances, but in terms of what you're talking about here, this is all very targeted and specific. Right. And one of the important things is that, you know, with the use of high, you know, resolution ultrasound, we're able to see the diseased or the degenerative areas of the tendon. And so what we like to do is we, we locally anesthetize the area. So it's a, it's really a virtually painless uh, procedure for the patient, but then under real time uh, sonography, we're able to put the BPC 157 or whatever we're putting in, um, in, into that degenerative area. Now, one of the things that we do do in addition to just infiltrating the BPC 157 is we needle that tissue a little bit. And so that's kind of like, um, if you think about it, it's like a debridement, so to speak. So you're taking this tissue that is diseased and you're kind of disrupting it a little bit by, you know, multiple little fenestrations of, of, of it with the needle. And then when you put the peptide in or the PRP or the amniotic, it just fills that whole area. You can see it on the ultrasound. It just fills it. So you're getting a really high concentration of that, that peptide in that area of where that tendon is damaged. And that's, I think, you know, I think it makes sense to stack, you know, oral or systemic peptides Mm -hmm. on, but you're not going to get that, that effect of the debridement as well as the effect that man, you're delivering a load. That's really, really um, much higher than a systemic administration would allow. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like sanding a piece of wood before you apply stain. Yeah. You disrupt the surface area, right? Right. And you will give, you give the ability for the tissue to absorb so that it doesn't, it's almost like it doesn't bounce off. I don't know. No, that's a great, that's a, like, no, that's a great analogy because that's what we do with diabetic wounds. So if we have a diabetic wound, that's not healing, we can't put a biological dressing on it until we debride it, clean all of the dead tissue away so that there's new viable bleeding tissue below that will allow for integration of that biological dressing. So that's exactly what we're doing when we, we fenestrate or needle um, a tendon or a ligament. Nice. Yeah. Well, there's me just bringing it down to basics. <laughs> yeah. I like that. I'm going to use that in my practice. We got to sand the wood before yeah. we stain. I love that. <laughs> it helps patients that. a lot. It helps patients a lot when you can explain things like that. Yeah. Well, because they can kind of get their heads around it. Right. It's almost right. like, Oh, okay. Yeah. No, I, I get that. You yeah. Know, that makes I, sense. I, right. I can, I can get my heads around that. So if so far, so BPC one five seven is your star peptide for the time being, I suspect knowing you. And I think what's what, well, and I don't know you that well, but from what little bit I do know of you, 
is that quality that we often lament that sometimes maybe gets sucked out of doctors as they go through the process of becoming a doctor is this whole issue of curiosity, right? And right. openness to something new. And have you looked at GHKCU yet as, a, as an agent? Because again, it's another one that seems to be very helpful with scarring. The, the TB4, it's the anti-fibrotic effects, I think, that right. we're seeing the benefits from. I've looked at that a little bit, um, and I've come across really more with the hair follicle on that, interestingly, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, they're using it in alopecia and, and that. But um, to, to answer your question, no, but that's one that we should definitely look at. Quick word from our sponsor today, Mag Breakthrough. One of the best things you can do to improve your health is to get at least seven hours of quality sleep every night. I know it's hard to get that much sleep. Your mind keeps you awake. You can't get comfortable. You wake up early, then you can't fall asleep again. There are hundreds of reasons why you can't get seven hours of quality sleep nightly. But listen, it's super important because your body heals itself when you sleep. And if you're not getting enough quality sleep, you are increasing your risk of disease and making it harder to lose weight. An easy way to get more quality sleep every night is to get enough magnesium. Believe it or not, around 75% don't get enough of it, explaining why so many people have sleep problems. Unfortunately, most magnesium supplements are not full spectrum, so they just can't fix your magnesium deficiency or help you sleep better. There are actually seven unique forms of magnesium, and you must get all of them if you want to experience its calming sleep-enhancing effects. That's why I recommend and personally use Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. Just take Take two capsules before you go to bed and you will be amazed by how much better you sleep and how much more rested you feel when you wake up. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, go to magbreakthrough.com forward slash bionat to save up to 42%. Again, you can save up to 42% on Magnesium Breakthrough when you go to magbreakthrough.com forward slash bionat. Yeah, well, Dr. Lauren Pickhart, who's the doctor, he's still alive. He's in his 80s now and he's hard at work on a book on GHKCU. So he's the one who discovered it back in the seventies. I think of him as a grumpy guy. Cause I've reached out to him a couple of times to do a podcast and he just, you know, he just kind of grumps at me. I'm too busy. I don't have time for podcasts. I'm writing a book and I'm like, yeah, but it's yeah. only an hour. <laughs> right. And it'll get people to read your book. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, and no, right. in his mind is like, nope, book's got to be done first yeah. before I do anything else. But anyway, he's done a ton of research on it. So he might talk to you because you're, you know, you're a doc. No, um, I don't, I don't know, but I don't know. I'd like to talk to him. Yeah. I, I think that's the whole thing. Like you talk about, um, you know, first of all, I love what I do. And one of the reasons I love what I do is because I learned that I really don't know that much and I got to go try to learn some more. And then I realized there's more unknowns out there than I knew there were before I, you know, became a little bit more educated and peripheral neuropathy is the ideal thing to um, make you really have to either throw up your hands and say, I'm done with it, or mm-hmm. I got to keep digging on this. We have to, we have to do some things here um, to figure out this uh, for these patients because they're really, um, you know, they, you mentioned how severe it is earlier. I mean, I think about 10% of our practice is suicidal. Really? Yeah, yeah. Well, because there's no escaping the pain, right? You can't because no. I think painkillers don't even really touch it when it's really bad. Uh, yeah. You know, opioids don't seem to do that much. There's been a huge pushback on opioids, um, of course. And and in all fairness, it's a it's a pain that's 24-7 for people. Yeah. And they just get to a point where 
you know, if you have peripheral pain, then very quickly you have uh, an alteration in your central nervous system neurotransmitters and your ability to fight pain um, is greatly decreased. You, um, you, you rarely find a patient, a, a chronic uh, peripheral nerve injury patient that does not have some component of anxiety or depression. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible. Mm -hmm. uh, and now people manage that, you know, in different ways, but, um, oh, it's a devastating condition to have. Yeah. And do you find uh, because I've, I've, there was a book that I read many years ago now by, by a gentleman by the name of Norman Deutsch, and it was called the brain's way of healing. I think. Okay. I think that's the name of the book. And it was a series of short stories about different brain, different people who'd had different issues and how they dealt with it. And there was one guy who dealt with severe chronic pain mm -hmm. and he talked about addressing it actually from here. Right. Because what he was explaining is once you've had this pain long enough, it becomes like you can almost, it's almost, he was talking about almost, you could resolve the source and still experience the pain neurologically because it was almost like a, 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 a vicious circle in the brain that you had to somehow break. Right. And I, we, we call that central sensitization. Okay. And so you can have a peripheral sensitization where you have a peripheral nerve that's damaged to a point that it then starts to actually change epigenetically. It develops receptors that it's not supposed to have. It develops, um, you know, the fibers that are not supposed to conduct pain, conduct pain. And so oh, that's okay. called central sensitization. But then in the brain, if you have a bad stimulus for a long enough period of time, you can get negative plastic changes in the, in the brain itself, not only the cortex, but other parts of the brain. And so that would be called Called central sensitization. Now, a good example of this is like the wounded warriors, if they've lost a leg, they have, you know, phantom pains and they can feel their toes hurt, but they don't have any toes. And that's yeah. clearly imprinted on the, the cortex of that individual's brain. And that's what makes peripheral neuropathy so difficult because many times it's not just peripheral, it's actually yeah. centralized as well. And so that's why you have to treat the whole patient. And, you know, we send people routinely for psychiatric uh, consultations because there's nothing that I can do peripherally um, if the brain isn't ready for it, you know, so they have to be dialed in by somebody who's really um, into that from a psychiatric standpoint, and they, they can get them, you know, maximally uh, better individually so that, you know, a surgical a surgical procedure may be then, you know, very effective and the outcome would be, you know, much better. But if you just ignore that central component, you're doomed for failure. And yeah. so that's why you have to spend a lot of time with these patients um, to, because the more they are able to tell their story, the more you're able to pick it up. I mean, we pick up a lot of PTSD mm. and there's an incredible uh, level of PTSD uh, in patients with chronic nerve pain. It makes sense. Yeah. Right. Like you're traumatized right. just from, and you know, anybody who's like anybody who's had a surgical procedure, let's say, or had a severe injury, it's the, you get exhausted from pain. Mm -hmm. Like constant pain is it's just draining in a very unique way to the human system. Like it's because there's no getting away from it. You can't sleep it off. You can't. Right. 
Well, and then the the other thing is is that your your life as you know it is like taken okay. away from you. Yeah. So you can't, you're not, you're not able to go to the gym. You're not able to, you know, walk at the mall or do the things that, you know, pick up your grandkids here. You know, it's almost like someone has stolen your life mm-hmm. and, you know, that's very hard to deal with without developing some psychiatric um, overlay. For sure. You know? For sure. So you were talking about heavy metals and mold and EBV. And you were saying that sometimes people have multiples of these, but do you find like with the heavy metal, is that, do you find a particular profile of patient that, that develops that? Is that the metals getting into the nerve somehow, or do you have any well, sense of what, how that contributes to the neuropathy? So um, the actual physiological mechanism is pretty complex, but uh one patient that comes to mind is a, a lady that had um, a very unsuccessful hip um, replacement. And they used a, a, an implant with uh, cobalt. And mm-hmm. this, for some reason, just ground away. And her cobalt level um, was astronomical. And she came to us with her, with her labs already and said, you know, I have a high cobalt level. Nobody, nobody knows what to do to get this cobalt down. So I actually sent her to one of our naturopath colleagues who uh, did chelation on her. And after about six to eight weeks, brought her cobalt level down from like 33,000 to 3,000. And magically, guess what happened? Her neuropathy went away. So you know, I mean, just having that excess load of, of heavy metals is, is, is going to play a role. Um, but and wouldn't the implant it, just keep leaching? They took it out. Oh, they did. Oh yeah. They took it out and then they replaced it with a non-cobalt um, implant, but they couldn't get the cobalt levels down. And oh, so I that's, yeah, so yeah, then yeah. I sent her over to the naturopath and, and um, they were able to chelate her uh, very successfully and, and get this cobalt out. So, um, you know, so you have to look at it and I I think what you, you know, as you do with all patients, you, you kind of go through a systematic approach. Uh, you don't look for the rarest thing. You look for the more, more, most common thing. And we know that diabetic peripheral neuropathy is the most common. And so a lot of people don't realize that they are pre-diabetic or diabetic. Um, I guess with the standard American diet, or standard North American diet that, um, you know, it's pretty hard. You're either pre-diabetic or diabetic. I mean, there's yeah. not, not unfortunately, <laughs> you know, and so, you know, that they'll be incredibly surprised when you, you look at their, um, serum fasting insulin levels and, you know, they have an insulin of 35 or 40 and, uh, you do a, a home IR calculation on them and it's 9.8 or, you know, something, you know, really high. And then that causes the hyperinsulinemia in and of itself causes the, the neurop, the nerves to swell. So we're able to take care of, you know, a nerve that's entrapped because it has become edematous or swollen, but we also want to take care of the person so that mm-hmm. they don't continue to have these metabolic things. So you have to treat the whole human. 
That's yeah. what's, and that's what's missing in medicine so much right now is people don't, and it takes time. It's a totally different type of practice. And if I see 16 patients in a day, that's like, I'm exhausted because they're complex and you have to really look at them. And, and, uh, it's not like, uh, a 70 patient a day internal medicine practice where everybody's like in and out in two minutes or something, you know, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's real difficult. Yeah, no, it's, it's really challenging. And it's interesting to me, right? Because what you're really doing is you're going upstream. You're going, right. this is this right. whole root cause thing right. that some people love, some people hate. But at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, I can treat your nerve pain, but if I don't know why it's coming, it's just coming back. Right. And, and you were talking earlier, I think it was before the podcast about heel pain and how mm-hmm. you will often diagnose person as being pre-diabetic or diabetic before they even know it just because they have this heel pain that they've come to you because, you know, they have intractable knee heel pain, like right. pain in their heel because of the, a nerve that's going something about the calcaneus. Nerve. Right. So no, <laughs> yeah, you're right. So, so they'll come in and their chief complaint will be heel pain. And so again, you're going to think about the plantar fascia is the number one thing. And within three minutes after you've done a diagnostic ultrasound on them, you can tell they either have have some component of plantar fasciopathy or they have a perfect plantar fascia. If they have a perfect plantar fascia, then obviously something else is going on. And there's a small nerve. There's actually several of these nerves on the inside of the heel called the medial calcaneal nerves, but they go through very tight little tunnels and there's not much tissue and there's an incredible amount of weight that goes through that part of the foot. And so if you have nerves that are swelling, they're going to show up symptomatically earlier in tunnels that have less, you know, forgiveness, less ability for that nerve to expand. And one of those nerves happens to be the medial calcaneal nerve. So then you have to think, well, if they have this nerve entrapped, then we usually run another uh, neurosensory test. Uh, with a device that's called PSSD stands for pressure specified sensory device. It was actually um, invented by my, my mentor Lee Dallin up at, at Hopkins. Um, and it picks up very early sensory um, abnormalities mm-hmm. before these patients even know that they're manifesting sensory impairment. And then you look at all four nerves and both legs are affected. Well, now we know that it's not just heel pain on their right side. It is a metabolic condition that led to that. So now we're obliged to, well, what is it metabolically? We're going to get the blood test. So you see how it just takes you right down to like what you said, let's yeah. get to the core of the problem. And we're tra- trained as symptom treaters. Mm-hmm. And right. I mean, one disease, one pill, one deformity, maybe 10 different surgeries, but we're not treating the human. And yeah. when you treat, and when you're able to find the cause now, a lot, unfortunately, a lot of times, once the nerve is entrapped, even if we get the most compliant patient in the world and they do everything and they get all of their metabolics turned back into, you know, pretty good shape, they may still have that nerve entrapment, sure. but they're better. You know, we have patients come in all the time saying, you know, I, I mean, I, my vision seems sharper. I, I can think better. I can do all of these, you know, we're not treating cognition. We're just treating them, you know, stop eating all the sugar, super yeah. neuroinflammatory, um, start exercising, try to get your sleep, you know, the, the pillars of good health. 
And yeah. it's amazing. It's amazing how the body will heal itself if you give it a chance. For sure. But yeah, but as you're saying, I mean, I guess if the, if the, if the nerve entrapment has gone on long enough, there's a certain amount of damage and then that you need the mechanical treatment that you would right. bring to, to bear through the exactly. surgery that would actually right. relieve that. And I guess that that nerve entrapment in the heel is probably descriptive of other stuff that's going on in the rest of the body, but mm -hmm. it's, it's because the heel, like you can't not walk, you cannot exercise. Right. Right. You cannot do all these. So they would know that they might have the same thing going on in their shoulders, for example, because they're not lifting weights. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, diabetes, for example, you know, as you know, affects uh, all of the musculoskeletal tissues. I mean, it affects the, the nephron and the kidney. It affects the, you know, the, the retina, it, yeah, yeah. You know, cognition. I mean, if you look at all of the, you know, the stats with folks with type two diabetes, high levels of cardiovascular disease, uh, dementia, neurocognitive disorders, or, you know, off the chart cancer. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a disease that really affects every cell in the body. And what happens is that certain areas might be, you know, the things that show up first, but you, I can guarantee you, if you have diabetic peripheral neuropathy, you have some impairment of your kidneys, you have some impairment of your vasculature. I mean, it just, there's no way to just say, okay, it's only going to affect this part of the body yeah, or this yeah. cell type, you know, it's almost like it's the canary in the coal mine, you know, it is it's the it loudest, is. it's the loudest or the reddest, biggest flag kind of thing, but there's all kinds of stuff going on in the rest of the body at the same time. Yeah. And, and it's, it's really, um, it's really shocking for a patient to come in sometimes and their, their complaint is heel pain. And then they leave, you know, two or three visits later. And, and it's like, well, you need to go to your internist or your family practice doc and get managed because you're diabetic. Yeah. And they didn't know. They had yeah. no idea. They had no yeah. idea. No kidding. Well, and then, you know, and as you just said earlier, I mean, it's both sad and inspiring that by going back to the, the basics, Right. You can improve so much. You may not, you know, you may not solve something that's been progressing for a period of time completely, but that you can get that kind of improvement from something that's a cheap and B, you know, right. pretty foundational. Right. Um, I think that's, that's really amazing. So, so one of the things, you know, I find a lot of things really inspiring about you, but one of the many things that I find very inspiring about you is that you're actually training med students. Mm -hmm. in, this, yeah, so, in this school of thought, which is, I just think it's so amazing. Like, I'm, I remember when you told me that I was like, there's hope, <laughs> there's <laughs> hope in the world. <laughs> yeah. So we, uh, I've been involved with residency programs for gosh, for 30 years. And, um, about six years ago, developed a nerve fellowship programs, two-year fellowship. So, um, they'll spend two years just studying peripheral nerve and, and then, uh, they're pretty far down the rabbit hole. They can't come out. Okay, yeah. There's no <laughs> now, way out except forward. No, it's a, yeah, it's, it's just like, all right, you're in there. You're, you're, you're not coming out, but, uh, but yeah, no, that's what we need to do. And, and then, you know, um, the nerve fellows train more nerve fellows. And then we also have a very important organization called the association for extremity nerve surgeons, which, um, we train, I don't know how many we train, but probably 30 surgeons a year in advanced and, and introductory fundamental 
peripheral nerve courses. We're starting to train more residency directors now so that they're, you know, getting this into the residency curricula. Um, we are making some inroads with the curricula at uh, some of the schools where they're, they're actually teaching it. But yeah, you know, there's, there's the old dogs like me. Uh, we're not going to be around for a long, long time. So we've got to get the new blood to start carrying the baton. And that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, that's awesome. I love it. So looking ahead, so you've now, you know, you've discovered BPC-157, TB4, and you're exploiting right. them to their backs and continue right. to, to explore that. What are you most excited about looking ahead? I mean, you know, it's, I'm, you know, I think everybody who's been listening to this podcast knows it ain't going to stop there. No, no, it's, it's, it's not. Um, no. Well, I think, you know, the bioregulatory peptides, I think that's the next um, event horizon for me to go into that next black hole or rabbit hole, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> uh, thanks to uh, my colleague and, and personal physician, who's absolutely brilliant. And you had him on Dr. Gus Vickery. Yeah, he's uh, awesome. Now he, I think maybe the only place I would question his intelligence is why he became a friend of mine. Uh, other than that, <laughs> he has pretty good judgment, but uh, anyhow, um, I, I think that, you know, this goes back to the core human and he and I have had a lot of discussions about, you know, uh, treating the person rather than just the symptom. And I think that is the case with a lot of the peripheral neuropathies. And, you know, that's why I, I look forward to seeing what we can do. And if you look at Cavison's research, it's pretty incredible uh, mm -hmm. when you see what he's done with the retinal scans and, and that type of thing. And those are very objective. It's not just somebody saying, you know, yeah, my pain was a 10 out of 10 and now it's a four out of 10. It, I mean, it's like these scans are the scans. It's like the tendon on the ultrasound. It's either improved yeah. or not it's a very objective finding so i think there's a lot of you know and, and it's not like these things haven't been around for a long long period of time it's just they've been undiscovered for a long long period of time and mm -hmm. you know i think your your podcasts with uh, bill lawrence were were great to explain that history and everything but anyhow i think that's the next horizon for us to to be running toward uh, because I think we can, I think we can make the person healthier, even though there's really not much written on uh, peripheral nerve, but you, you would think that if, if you see some of the things from a central nervous standpoint, you would think, well, if it acts on the neuron inside the brain or the spine, uh, why shouldn't there be a peripheral um, applicability as well? And I think that's our next thing. And I like, you know, you always have to look at what's, you know, the risk versus the reward, mm -hmm. how, you know, how dangerous is something for that patient, you know, and in surgery, we're always balancing out is, is the benefit outweigh the risk. And sometimes it doesn't, sometimes we'll say, you know, um, we'd be better off not operating on you. We, we've got to figure out some other way to go because your chances of, of getting an outcome that we would want for you, let alone what you would want for you are, you know, not, not ideal. So I think that's where this will come into play. So I'm very anxious to, to do this. And because we work with students and pre-med students and have interns and, and fellows and whatnot, um, we'll be able to track this data and hopefully get some things published. But uh, I expect 
And I think one of the things too, you know, if we, if we do a study, one of the selection criteria would be, we have to have a patient who's willing to invest in it themselves, because a lot of patients will come to us and they don't want to do the work. Yeah. They just want, they just want you to write a prescription. Here's the pill. And then they're not happy a month later or six months later because they're no better. And the answer is, well, they've not invested in their own health care. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I I think that's the big thing. It's like there is no magic pill. It's a lot of hard work. And I wish there was. I Mm -hmm. I mean, it'd make my life a lot easier and make a lot of other people's lives a lot easier. But when you have a condition like this, you have to be invested in it and you have to say, okay, I'm willing to do the work if somebody shows me how to do the work and, and augment that with what we're, we're, doing with the peptides and all of the other things that we do. Yeah. Uh, well, those patients but, will often say it didn't work. And therein, right. is, therein lies the nut, right? It, it right. won't work. Actually, the no. work comes from you. <laughs> right. And or if and, anything, it's a collaboration, right? You have to. Right. It's working with it, with working with. And, and I will often talk to people about finding a physician who will walk with them. Because right. to your point, you know, for someone of your stature to say, we don't have all the answers and it doesn't always work. It means that you're on a discovery process with every one of these patients as you move through your continuum of what you're going to look at and what you're going to consider. And they're contributing to that. Huge well, and, and so I think there's a huge mind body connection as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that, Unfortunately, with peripheral neuropathy, people have lost hope. And yeah. when, you, when you have lost hope, it's hard to press on and to buy into, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, chop the wood, tote the water type of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so there's no way, I wished I could figure this out, but there's mm-hmm. no way to ultimately motivate somebody to do something. I mean, education comes close. We can give them all of the, the reasons of why it's good and, and what it could do for, for them. But until they're willing to buy in and say, all right, I'm going to go through the pain of what I need to do. I'm going to give up that bag of potato chips. I'm going to give up these sugary things. Yeah. Until they're willing to do that, it's really, we're kind of handcuffed, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and there's nothing I like more than the motivated patient. You know, I end up spending, yeah. I mean, you spend more time with the motivated patient because they want more, they want more. What, you know, I'm doing all this and and what more can I do? You know, that, that really, because if you think about it, we do what we do because we want the patient to get better. That's, that's it, you know? And there's nothing worse than, you know, going home at the end of the day going, oh man, I just can't get these, you know, three or five people that I saw today. I can't move them. I can't, you know, and part of it is the condition. Part of it is, you know, are they willing, how motivated they are? And then, you know, we, we still need to discover some more things. But I think if you come to the the table with a, a condition like that. And you have a physician that kind of looks at all of the different things and you're willing to invest and buy in and do the work. I think there's great hope for many, many people. And, yeah. um, it, it's, I, I, it's a much more positive than I am. You know, I, don't, I really don't have a lot of pessimism 
other than I just wished I could get the motivation pill and just like give everybody, okay, here's your motivation pill. You take it. Let's and then, do it. <laughs> yeah, let's get it done, you know. Hey folks, I have something so exciting to tell you, and that is that the Women's Longevity and Resilience Retreat is happening again, and it is happening this November from the 9th to the 13th in Cabarete on the beach in the Dominican Republic, and it is shaping up to be just as awesome as the first one was in March. The response from the participants was just overwhelmingly amazing. We had such an amazing time hosting it. And so Dasha and I decided that we wouldn't wait a year for the second one. We would do one in the fall to get us ourselves and our participants ready for the winter, no matter what it brings. So if this sounds even of any interest to you, please go to my website, natnidham.com, go to the retreats tab at the top of the page, and you'll get a bunch of information there along with a link to book a free call with Dasha and I to see if this is right for you. So thank you so much and enjoy the rest of the episode. A lot of people will say, and maybe you found this as well, that there something about the BPC-157 is that sometimes, even before someone has fully bought in and invested, it gives them a glimmer of hope. Like it, it gives them a sign that things can get a little bit better. And just that, even though it can't do all the work, just right. that little bit of improvement that they see kind of fuels this fire of, well, wait a minute, if I can get this far, well, what else can I do? Yep. Like it, it I, kind of, it can sometimes reignite that, that belief that things can change. Yes. And, and I think, I think that can happen with a lot of disease processes. If you just give the person some more energy, yeah. right. And if they have more energy throughout the day, then they can go to bed and sleep better at night. Mm-hmm. Well, now all of a sudden they have, uh, they have an improvement that's it's an integral, but at least they have enough energy to say, okay, I see a little difference. And, and I think the BPC-157 is great for that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I discovered a while back is, like you said before, I'm a, I'm a hybrid. So I'm going to take whatever functional yeah. medicine and whatever, and I'm not a big pharma fan at yeah, all. But, okay. big pharma, but big pharma has done some great things for us. You know, I mean, if you look at some of the infections, people would die if we didn't have these antibiotics and everything. But at the same time, you can't just write prescriptions to cover up all of these problems. But if you ask the nerve patient, how do you sleep? I guarantee you 99 out of 100 will say not very well. No. I've, and then yeah, follow up that question. Well, do you fall asleep throughout the day? Oh, yeah, I have to take naps because I, I don't have any energy. So if they're taking naps and they're falling asleep at their desk, they're in this quagmire of they can't, they can't really get sleep and they have and sleep is so important mm-hmm. uh without it you know you that you die really um yeah. and i think sure. matthew walker's book why we sleep is a fantastic book i think every every person should be required to read that because it's so important <laughs> but but anyhow one of the things that we we discovered is that if we would give a patient that was in that type of a situation um some uh, modafinil then they would be able to stay awake throughout the day and they didn't nod off all the time. And then guess what happened? We didn't have to really give them anything for sleep because they were able to go to sleep. (laughs) Right. And they exactly. And then, you know, the, the dopaminergic effect of that drug, I think gives people a little bit of hope. And, and so 
it's a, of course it's kind of an off label usage, but you know, we're still allowed, albeit with everything that has been said to use drugs off label, but that's an interesting way to, to look at it. And it goes back to what you're saying is that if you give them a little bit more energy and, and that's why I think the bioregulatory peptides mm-hmm. may really um, do that because you're not asking a big buy-in from the patient. It's not like I got to have you down to the gym and doing all of this and doing all of that. Um, all we got to do is you just got to swallow these pills every day. And mm-hmm. then we, we measure them. And, and the other thing is patients love metrics, right? So yeah. if we can show a patient that their blood pressure has gone down yeah. or their hemoglobin A1C has gone down, um, their lipid panel has gotten better. All of these things, they, most people are able to see numbers and yeah. like in, intraoperatively, when we do a nerve repair, many times we'll do intraoperative EMG. So we have a number of how much that nerve is conducting before it's decompressed. And then a number that, you know, so it may go from 600 to 6,000 after the decompression and the patients will look at that and they'll say, yeah. Wow. Okay. Now I know that, you know, and I take a lot of intraoperative photos and I give oh, them the, cool. yeah, yeah, no, because, because a lot of times they internalize, I must just be crazy. It's in my head. But when they see that picture of where the nerve is pinched and it looks like an hourglass, it's very easy for them to understand. Yes, I did have a nerve entrapment. Mm-hmm. So now that gives a huge psychological benefit to them because they know it wasn't just in their head. They weren't just making it up. They had a real condition and just, you validated it. Yeah. And, no kidding. That's and the, they've won. And they've yeah. won. They won. Like right. Them, exactly. Win, right. Like, it's right. Exactly. Yeah. Amazing. And it's one of those things where you build success upon success, but yeah. the average patient that comes in to see us, they're with us for, you know, 18 months, 24 months, because it takes, it's a process. It's not mm-hmm. like, okay, yeah, we'll see you next week and you're good. You know? Yeah. yeah. It's a different, it's a, different. it's a totally different animal. Yeah. No kidding. But, but it's exciting because I think, you know, I think the peptide thing is just, uh, I, it's the next, it, it's the next uh, frontier that we really need to get to. Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, I think it's really exciting when people like you and Gus kind of, get enthralled by them and start digging in and leaning in and, and playing with them, you know, and, and exploring what you can accomplish. And I'm really excited to see what happens. And, you know, I'm hoping that in a, I don't know whether it's six months or 12 months time, we can hop on another podcast and talk about what you found. Oh, I'd love to do that. I'm starting with my N of one today. Amazing. Amazing. Well, yeah. What, what, you know, like it, back in the old days, the uh, uh, Chinese medicine, the, the Chinese doctor couldn't do anything that he hadn't done to himself. To himself. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> here, take this herb, you know. But yeah, I, I love the N of one. But to go back, one other thing is that, like, Dr. Vicker and I, we really get excited about this stuff. First, it's an academic excitement. You're reading this stuff in journals and you're looking at people who are lecturing about it and that type of thing. But then once you cross the abyss from clinical or from intellectual understanding into clinical implementation, and you actually see it work on a patient, that's like reading a thousand journal articles. It's like, uh, even though you knew it was going to do it, 
when that person comes in and says, wow, I can't tell you how that, you know, it's like there, that then pushes you that much farther down that rabbit hole. And I think that's what we're going to see. And I'm really excited to try that. Nice. Nice. Well, that's, it's going to be a fun ride for sure. So Stephen, I think we could keep talking for a really long time, but maybe what we'll do is we'll leave it at this and with a promise of a continuation down the road. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but before we say goodbye, maybe you can tell people how they can reach you or your clinic if what's something they've heard here has inspired them to think, hey, maybe I could be the next one. Yeah. So probably the best way to get a hold of us is at uh, nerve, N-E-R-V-E-T-X uh, dot com. And you can email through that, read about a lot of the things that we've talked about. Um, we're trying to get a kind of an exciting little tool on our website where if a patient does have heel pain, they can answer some certain things and the algorithm then tells them how likely they are to have a nerve entrapment versus just plain plantar fascia. So that could be a useful tool for people. Yeah. But that's really the best way to get a hold of us or um, usneuropathycenters.com. But it's easier to say nervetx.com. So, so, so TX, you're in Texas? No, TX just for treatment. Oh, treatment. Like, yeah. Okay. Like RX, TX, you know. Got it. S, yeah. So that's why we did that. Okay. Um, and where are you located? Just so people know, because this is not this is not telemedicine medicine here. We're talking hands-on stuff. I mean, you right. Be- well, we do actually a lot of telemedicine with initial patients because right. about, yeah, about 30% of our patients are from out of state, but we're in Marietta, uh, Georgia, okay. and just which is just outside of uh, Atlanta. Okay, great. Amazing. Well, Dr. Barrett, it's been such a pleasure today talking with you again, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you again. I am too, Natalie, and I appreciate your time and I really love your podcast. So I I just have to figure out how I can get more time in the week where I can listen to everybody's great podcasts because uh, (laughs) it's, it's very good, but thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that's what helps us to be heard and to be seen. If you'd like to connect with me directly, or if you'd like to leave any comments, or if you have any questions about this episode, please reach out to me directly through my website, natnidham.com. And of course, if you're not already a member of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Community on Facebook, that's where you'll find me every day. It's a short application, just answer a couple of questions and you're in and interfacing with other amazing biohackers. Thanks again, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode.